a Podcast One production. Hello and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, conversations with fascinating people all centred around food. On this episode, I'm speaking with Mary Hamilton, who now runs Hugh Hamilton Wines, which is no ordinary wine business. The company was actually founded 180 years ago. Who would have believed they were planting vineyards way back then? But it was set up by her great-great-great-grandfather, who planted the first vineyards in South Australia. This set off a chain reaction that would lead to Mary running the business nearly two centuries later. Whether Mary makes a big thing of this or not, but she's actually from a long line of men in this family. She's the first woman to run the company, and it sounds very much like she's setting it up for maybe centuries to come. Take a listen and enjoy. So, Mary, Richard Hamilton. There's a story behind all this in Hamilton's Wines, isn't it? And it goes back many, many years. Is it six generations? Yeah, I'm the six now. Mm-hmm. That is a long lineage to be responsible for, isn't it? I don't know that I feel totally responsible for the behaviour of all of them. It's 180 <laughs> years of bad behaviour back there. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to take responsibility for all that. Do you know any of the bad behaviour? You don't have to say it right now, but, you know, I, I can do, drag it out I of you later. I do know some of the bad behaviour. So yeah. how did it all start? How, you know, where did the, the story of Hamilton Wine start? Well, it started 180 years ago in Dover. Which from, is? From your old Okay, so in England, around. Dover in England. Yeah, in Kent. Right. So my great, great, great grandfather, whose name was Richard Hamilton, was living in Dover with his wife Anne and they had nine children and he was living the life of a tailor. And from what we can understand, he was reasonably successful. He had a shop on the high street, on Snargate Street in, in Dover. And then curiously, in 1836, he went up to London and he bought land under this scheme called the Wakefield Scheme. And he stumped up uh, 80 pounds and he got land that he had never seen before to start a new life, which was rather odd for a man of 47 years of age. Okay. Because this was 1836 and in the late 1880s, Men in England lived till they were 47 years of age as an average. So he was in the twilight years, not in his middle age. He had sort of almost one foot in the grave and off he goes and sort of starts uh, a plan for a life at the bottom of the globe on land he's never even seen before to be something that he's never been before, an agriculturalist, when he's a tailor. So he um, goes back and obviously packs up life and he and Anne take eight of their nine children and they hop on the boat, the Catherine Stewart Forbes, and they wave goodbye to the White Cliffs of Dover for the last time and off they go. 16 weeks at sea with eight children, which I'm thinking would be a nightmare personally i've got two littleies and can't even get to the state border without lots of moaning let alone four months on a boat i don't imagine that the Catherine stewart forbes was like p&o funship with movies and cocktails uh, in big plastic uh, (laughs) (laughs) and evening cinema and entertainment can you imagine the moaning well travel back then would have been uh, it's a serious commitment and sometimes you know people would die during the journey, oh, let's be honest, right? right. So, yeah. you know, the and going into the unknown. Yeah, there's no emergency room at the there's other no end. There's no flying the... out, there's no flying back home, no. is there? You've made a solid commitment, you're leaving with your kids and it's for life. And that's it. 
And so that's what they did. They took all their possessions that they wanted to have for the rest of their life with them and they um, sat on this boat. I'm, I'm guessing they're pretty tough because he he wrote in rather uh, positive terms about the experience of being on this on this ship for all that time. They did go down via Rio and jumped off and reprovadored the ship and, and, and then off they went again. And when they arrived, um, they arrived at Glenelg, which is a seaside suburb of Adelaide um, and they just jumped off and they had really no instructions of what to do. So this was not a chaperoned tour or anything. There was no guide. So they hopped off and all they had been told was make your way to the River Torrens and they did not know where the River Torrens was, never been here before. So he writes in um, his letters of, you know, trudging hopefully in the right direction through marshes and bogs. There weren't any roads established. No. And he says, we just wished that we could have stopped and asked someone if we are going in the right direction, but there was not a soul out there to stop and ask. And eventually the, the younger kids had taken off earlier because they were obviously a little fitter. And um, so they'd, they'd lost connection with the kids and um, they trudged along slowly behind, carrying even a tent on their back to probably spend the first few nights in, uh, finally got to the Torrens and had to try and track down the rest of their kids and um, pitch the tent. And they had been told with this tent, reinforce the roof with uh, more canvas because you just are not going to be prepared for the intensity of the heat yeah. in Australia. Do you know what month they arrived in Australia? Uh, they left... In June, so four months after that. Okay, so they were so heading into spring and heading into spring. starting to warm up. Yes, and it's probably lucky they did reinforce it because Colonel Light was doing the surveying and he's fairly prominent in Adelaide and got his statue up on the hill up there and towards North Adelaide. And, you know, he hadn't finished doing the survey. So they um, they got there and said, okay, well, where's the land? And there was no land to hand over because they didn't even have the survey complete. So they ended up living on the banks of the Torrens for months. So okay. they would have gone into summer and yeah. high heat and, and just and lived there until they got their uh, 80 acres. And was there a, an indication that he knew what he was going to do, what he was going to plant, what he was going to... Rear? He knew he was going to be a mixed farmer, but I don't think he had any idea in particular what he was going to do because he writes of having a crack at planting wheat and being unsuccessful and um, I think that they would have had to have sown vegetables and all sorts of things. So I think, you know, he just he just had a crack at doing all of this stuff along with neighbours and he writes of sort of neighbours and what they're up to as well. Um, he chose 80 acres over in what's now called a bigger suburb called Marion uh, because it had proximity to a, a creek, a river, the Sturt River. So he, he built on the edge of the Sturt River. So he'd done some research. Yes. At least. He had, he, well, when he saw the <clears throat> survey, he thought, I'm going to need water, so yeah. I will try. And being one of the first to get some land, I think he got a pick of where, where the water was. So, so what are the points in the story of establishing the farm and the vineyard um, interested the family as years have gone on. So what are the major points that have gone that have made a difference, let's say? Well, I think the biggest thing that made a difference is that he was a man with a thirst. So not long after putting in all of his wheat and that sort of thing, he looked around, he said, boy, there's something missing in this town and that's wine. 
because okay. you know it's so, it was so early in the piece that there was no wine being produced here. There were no grapevines. There'd been maybe one experimental bit of grapevine planted up in North Adelaide, but he basically. Um, pioneered and how he did that is quite interesting he he had some friends in South Africa and he knew that there was a wine <coughs> industry already established there so he wrote them a letter and I, I I don't know how desperate you can't tell from sort of the written word how desperate the plea was but it said for the health of the family could you please send us some grape vines because we need to make some wine so I think he just took this on the chin that um, in amongst wheat and everything else he was going to need he was going to need a drink. Okay. And they, do you think it was literally from that perspective, personal consumption, or do you reckon he was a true entrepreneur and when there's a gap in the market, we need to plant vines, make wine, and sell I to a new I don't new community. Would, no, I don't. I don't. I can't be sure, but I don't. I think it was because he was a wine drinker back in England, and it was probably getting to be a bit dry out so he's here. A pro- he's a proper adventurer. I mean, going from mm. Taylor in Dover, because let's be honest, there's no, there's no vineyards in Dover. No. And, um, and it's as far removed as you can possibly imagine. Not very complimentary tailoring to... To agriculture. No. And no. how hard was it? Do you know how hard... Do, do the stories tell you, do the letters tell you how hard it was? Because there's lots of stories of... Of, of that, that era of clearing land, of you know young children working the land, of families falling apart. I mean, it was a desperate times in many, yeah, many ways. I think it probably wasn't sustainable for the nine kids. Eight, he had nine children, and eight came out, and I think the last one joined later. It wasn't sustainable for them all to have a life off off that piece of land. So some of them went off to the goldfields in Victoria. Um, others went and did other things, and. One son remained, um, at least, um, that we know of. But I think uh, he must have been successful and he got... When these these grapevines, they came out from South Africa and they were dipped in wax because he corresponded with the South Africans and they sent them out in winter. So to keep them dormant, like um, we do now, grapevines in winter are dormant, um, dipped in wax, keep them fresh. He cracks off the wax when they arrive here in the colony of South Australia. He plants them. Well, he must have had some success because they they bore grapes and he started making wine. And so he had his first vintage and, you know, I don't know how rough it would have been, but he was obviously successful enough and they continued to obviously grow because then he started, um, you know, selling it to neighbours as you do. You know, you, yeah. you start growing zucchinis and you have way too many zucchinis or pumpkins and so you start giving them to all your family and friends well I think he probably did a bit of that with the wine and it was he only lasted I think um, around six years after he arrived you know because he was a, a okay. an old man really yeah um, by by those standards and so it, his son is the one who turned it into a proper business into okay. a wine business and do you know and do you know why he did that why his son did it why he saw the opportunity I think that there was a demand. I think that they found that it wasn't actually all that hard to probably sell wine to people. Yeah, Yeah, being one of the only people making it. He was probably the first person to grow grapes that made wine and he was probably the first person to um, sell wine in South Australia. So I I think that they probably thought, yep, this is going to be a goer. Are there any funny stories in, in that six years that the family know about from Richard Hamilton or...? Well, I always... No cheating, no skullduggery, no... (laughs) I think he was a black sheep. And, you know, our brand for our um, business is the black sheep because my father, Hugh, is the black sheep. And actually somebody somebody asked him yesterday, you know... 
why are you the black sheep? And uh, he said, we well, just have to look at all the others to be able to answer that question. Yeah, I about think, Hamilton's you're talking about. Yeah. The, okay. Yeah. We might come back to him later. <laughs> but I think that Richard was a black sheep because there is something very peculiar and curious about a man who's really, uh, by any standard, at the very, very end of his life, uprooting everything and uh, taking on the sort of the daunting prospect of sailing to the bottom of the globe in a place that really actually from a from a European perspective doesn't exist yet and uh, starting all over again and dragging eight of mm. your children with you. So, so what w- are the family theories? Well, there got to be a few floating around, some good ones and some bad ones, do you reckon? We think he might have been a, a man with a secret that he perhaps didn't want to tell too many people about. We think that Richard's relationship with wine started probably a lot earlier than South Australia. So whilst he was a tailor by day, he may have had another career at night. Mm. Come on. Well, he was in a good location for another career, being in Dover, just on the edge of the English Channel. Yeah. It's a lot of sailors. Are we talking possible. about a lot of sailors or travellers? Or? Yes, that he might have been trotting down to the beach at night for another enterprise, which might have involved um, receiving contraband from Bordeaux. We might get, have a smuggler. <laughs> you got a smuggler in the, in the midst, yeah? In the family tree. So he might have been running from something smuggler. rather than kind of discovering something. Could be. Yeah. Could be that the local constabulary were getting a little bit warm around the edges yeah. and uh, it's getting a little hot and, to and, a, and a genuine reason to uproot your family and move to the end of the earth, basically, because you're never going home. No. That's right. It's a one-way ticket, It's a one-way it? ticket. It's yeah. not like today. Yeah. So can we rewind, can we fast forward, sorry, a, yeah. a few years? When, yeah. when does the vineyard itself really start hitting its straps? Henry, his son, really turns it into a business. So it goes from just being a hobby farm into being a wine business. And then uh, Henry's son, Frank, really turns it into a thriving business. So still on the same site over at Marion, but at that stage they have got vineyards as far as the eye can see. And uh, you've got to remember back then people weren't actually table wine drinkers all that much. It was much so they had a distillery on site that would have been um, every bit as important as the wine, probably more important. So they were making everything. They were making, you know, whiskies, gins, sherries, fortifieds, later years, vodka, the whole works, brandy, everything. Um, So Frank really gets it going, gives it a big rev up. But unfortunately, he's a a man with an enormous talent, but he just dies unexpectedly in his early 50s and leaves leaves a big gap. His wife, who was affectionately known as the mater in the Latin sense of the word, the mother, she sounds like she was ferocious. I remember my grandmother sort of speaking about her in terms that, you know, every Sunday all the family would be expected to turn up at the Mater's house, which was the original house that um, Richard and Anne had built, um, original sort of villa, which is still there over on Morfitt Road. And you, you were expected to be at the Mater's for lunch. And everyone was a little scared to leave the maters first because she had a ferocious tongue and if you left first, you would be talked about. So everyone sort of lingered as long as possible because no one wanted to be first to leave lunch. Um, and she was a, uh, a really tough 
woman in the old school sense. She uh, didn't sort of, I think, enjoy the luxuries. Um, and so, you know, there's lovely sort of stories that she would always be sitting out of the front of this house and she would watch everything that came and went in the winery and she knew everything that was going on in that business. And uh, her son, who ended up taking over in the next generation, had the taste for the good life. And, you know, there, it's sort of regarded that she would be standing out on Oakland's road waiting for the tram and he would sort of swan out in his Rolls Royce and wave goodbye to her and she wouldn't have any of that. She was going to Glenelg on the tram. But it's the third generation, isn't it, traditionally, that fritters and squanders mm, the, the fortune? That's what they say. So it didn't happen. Well, no. The next generation after Frank died, they did actually really well with it. So, um, Eric... So what, what era are we in now? So where well, are we into the 30s and 40s yes, at this stage? Yes, we are. Yeah. And the two boys who ran the business in the next generation were extremely successful. Eric was the, the, the boss, I suppose, the eldest son. It was a pretty traditional way of doing things back then. And he was a really natural marketer. So he exploded the brand into the sort of the world. And at that stage, he turned it into, it was, it, it was one of the three biggest export wine brands out of Australia. And where were they exporting? Back to the, the, the old world, back to Britain? Yeah, mostly back to the Commonwealth countries. So Britain, Canada, that sort of yep. thing. Yeah. And his brother, Sidney Hamilton, absolute propeller head pioneer um, scientific genius and he has a he has his own wonderful colorful story because he sort of took himself off to Europe at a very young age and I can't recall exactly what it is but you know I remember reading it and thinking wow that seems unusual for a, a young really boy but he would have probably been a teenager I suppose taking himself off on a on a I think he on a cargo ship to to you know the old world, and he became a real admirer of uh, European wines, particularly white wines. He was very impressed by the Moselles and um, the Rieslings of of France, northern France, and of um, Germany. And when he came back to Australia, he wanted to be able to reproduce the delicacy of those beautiful white wines from Europe. And yet there was the heat here to contend with. And no yeah. one had solved that in Australia back in his yeah. day. So he didn't know how to make these delicate Moselles and Rieslings. Because we're talking about <clears throat> cooler climate wines. Exactly. Yeah. Much cooler climate. And we, <clears throat> we just couldn't do that here. So how he solved that was he dug out the first cellar in Australia. He, he just dug out the ground and um, he created the first underground cellar and then he um, brought out, there was no wine equipment per se at that stage in the world and so he refined using refrigeration equipment from Germany to and he became the first person in Australia to um, ferment white wine under cool conditions. Okay. Yeah. So this I would have imagined... <coughs> This I would have imagined in my kind of broad historical sense about wine, I would have thought this happened much later on. You know, when they talk about New World wines and steel vat, you know, fermentation and all yeah. the rest of it, I would have thought that that happened in the 60s or 70s. But yeah. this was much, much earlier. Much earlier, yeah. yeah. And he was such a fanatic, this guy. I just, I just love his um, – I love that he was so dedicated to trying to do things – the best that they could be done. So as I was saying before, at that stage, we're still talking about a country that's drinking much more fortified and, and spirit bases. And so it was a big thing to make spirits. And he took huge pride in bringing out 
boatloads of peat from Scotland to be able to make the finest Scotch whiskey right. outside of Scotland. So he bought peat he from Scotland. He shipped out peat from it's Scotland. <laughs> and that used to make the Hamilton's Gold Label whiskey, which was considered to be the best Scotch outside of Scotland. Wow. After the break, we learn a little bit more about Mary's personal background and how she found herself running a 180-year-old wine business. Plus, we discuss the challenges she faces as the first female CEO of the company. Stay with us. How fickle has the business been over the generations? I mean, most people, I mean, even, you know, I think about business as it's just my business and it will survive as long as I can run it. But to hand it down to another generation is a is an incredible feat. How fickle has it been over the years? Have there, have there been points where it's nearly been lost? Yeah, it did. It did get lost, really. Um, it lost its way in the <clears throat> fifth generation where... Uh, um, so what years are we talking about? That would be the late 60s, early 70s, where, um, you know, lots of relatives, uh, someone at the helm and... Um, it just didn't turn out well for for the legacy of the original business, um, and the thing the whole business had to end up being sold to uh, a larger company, but the family went on. So um, whilst the company got sold, various family members are, they've just got a tough spirit, I think. So Sid, at the age of eighty three, he was the pioneer who came up with cold fermentation and the you know the the Scottish peat nut, he went and started Leckenfield at Coonawarra at the age of 83. Yeah. So you can see a little bit of the first Richard's gene pool in there, yeah. can't you? He's this not sort letting of, anything go. No, and started having a crack at something new and something that was pioneering again at the time yeah. when most people were dying. But it calls for a lot of dissension in, in the family. I suppose there's a number of siblings and people you can imagine bickering, squat, you know, it was very disappointing for yeah. uh, for the so wider for somebody family. Like Sid. Very disappointing, um, yeah, to sort of see five generations of building something be um, squandered because of you know individual behaviour and yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think that that was you know I, my grandparents. I think found that really sad. My my grandfather was the youngest of um, of the. F- four boys and so he I think had seen the writing on the wall much earlier that there wasn't going to be the big career for him in the business and he went to McLaren Vale and that's why we're there, down there because yeah. he he realised that um, he needed to make a fist of it himself so he set about being a really serious vigneron in McLaren Vale okay. um, and he saw that McLaren Vale was just God's own country for grape growing you just yeah. had this fabulous geography that was brilliant for grapes where you nestled between the escarpment of the Adelaide Hills and the coast on the okay. other side. So we've got a fracturing of families. We've got a business that's that's gone. It's splintered at it's that splintered. point. Yeah. Um, Various people went off and did their and own moved thing. to McLaren Vale to the southern yeah. Wales, yeah. Yeah, which is why my dad is there as well because yeah. his father was a vineyard on there. I don't want to skip your dad because obviously, you know, he's been instrumental in, you know, another generation of of wine success. Yeah. But how did you find what you weren't you weren't taking over the family business? You were no. gonna, you're doing something different. Where are, what did you do? Well, I always wanted to be in advertising. Don't ask me why now, but I just did and um I you know, went to ad agencies for work experience when I was a teenager. It was always what I wanted to do and um 
you know, finally somebody kind of gave me the wake-up call and said, look, it's too competitive now. You're not going to get in on the ground floor. Go and get yourself a marketing degree and then come back and see us. Right. So I did that. Can I stop you for a second? You've yeah. got brothers and sisters and... Well, I grew up as an only child right. and then my folks split up and then they both went on to have children of their own. Um, so I've got... I ended up going from having uh, a dog as a sibling to having four... Um, brothers and sisters quite quickly, yeah, when I was in in my teenage years. Okay. Um, So I went off. I hate to stop you. Yeah, go on. So you grew up on the vineyard? I grew up in the Adelaide Hills, actually. Okay. um, But used to go down to the vineyards, um, certainly after my parents split up each weekend to hang out with Dad because, you know, I'd spend my weekends with my father and he was down there running his brother's winery and he then also ended up being the general manager of Leckenfield and the winemaker at both of them. So he was pretty busy running both of these shows. Did it interest you? Did you get involved? I'll tell you what interested me. uh, Driving used to interest me and so at the age of seven I would commandeer the Kingswood Ute. I would have about four cushions cushions, from the sofa and I would prop myself up sort of in this Kingswood U and I would uh, circumnavigate all the vineyards, often get bogged and that sort of thing. I loved that and I used to drive up in the Adelaide Hills as well. uh, uh, Column shift, I presume? Oh, yeah, column shift, yeah, yeah, yeah. No little feet on... How oh, oh, did you break? Well, exactly. You'd have you'd have to try and keep your head looking at the windscreen, and then you'd have to shift your whole body and slide down to um, hit the brake and the accelerator. So it was quite it was quite artful, and I and I do remember driving that same Kingswood from Oint Bank in the Adelaide Hills to Seacliff, which is a seaside suburb, one night at two a.m. just on behalf of somebody I know <laughs> who happened to have had maybe a couple of drinks. That's I love right. it. Does the driving style? St- with you. you don't you find yourself in a paddock every so often in the youth doing donuts? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a serious question. I need that Kingswood back. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you started driving at seven, that's some accomplishment. Well, I used to love that. So that was one of the So benefits. driving interested you? And then uh, my reward at the end of the day for hanging out all day was that I would set up all the wines. And at that stage, there were no fancy sort of long-stemmed Austrian glasses. They were little tubby, they sort of looked like open shot glasses and they were made of very chunky glass. And so I would set up sort of 11 of them, one for each wine, and I would pour a nip into all of them and we'd go from, you know, sort of um, acid sort of searing Rieslings through to all the reds. And then we used to make, and again, another fashion, another sign of the times, we used to make uh, about five different varietals of sweet wines. We would make Auschleys, beer and Auschleys. We would make Moselle. We would make sort of off-dry Rieslings, <clears throat> then through to the to the fortifiers, the liqueur muskets and that sort of thing. So I would drink uh, those 11, and that was my little treat at the end of the day. And, of course, I would, you know, the, you save the best to last, and it just happened to be that all the sweet stuff's at the end, and that was the right. bit that I most liked. Were you seven? seven? Mm. Are you still seven? I was still so seven. So drunk seven-year-old driving at Kingswood with a column shift. I used to do the drinking after the driving. Okay, I'm just yeah. checking. We had a very um, <laughs> understanding local cop. <laughs> <laughs> Times were different then. So where I was trying to get at, did you not feel any kind of draw back then before you decided to go and get a degree in marketing to just take over the family business or get no, involved? No, I didn't. I didn't. Was that prob- a disappointment to anybody? To no, you, to, because to I think – 
well, there was another bust up in the family. Families always, you know, have these sorts of things. So my father had to go and start again um, in the early 90s and and he had hardly a brass razoo to his name so he had to start from scratch. It was very humble. So there was really nothing for him to probably think, hey, come yeah, and step in. Yeah, step into this sort okay. of wonderful, illustrious so business. Yeah, tough for him personally. Um, so he started again and just from scratch. And so uh, he focused firstly on vines because he respected and knew, unlike a lot of people in the wine industry now, he felt that commanding your own vines was much more important than having a showpiece winery because if you could control the raw material that makes the wine, then you've got you're onto something that's going to make good wine. So he firstly bought vineyards and ironically he ended up buying his father's church block, which has been made very famous by our neighbours, Wirra Wirra. Yeah. Um, but it's actually always been in the Hamilton family. It's a very historic block in McLaren Vale. He bought that on the open market after my grandfather died. Then he bought where our cellar door is. So he just sort of quietly just got himself on his feet with vines and um, and built a business out of it. Yeah. So he rebirthed, really. Yeah. Um, but he had all of this knowledge of years of accumulated knowledge that had kind of been arrived at through yeah. osmosis at the dining table when he was a kid all the yeah. way through to running, you know, these so other that's businesses. So that's, that's quite inspirational, though. I mean, as you're talking to me now, that, that sounds very inspirational. And you so say you're not, you're not drawn into this at this stage. I wasn't, no. You're just no. off I, doing your, your thing. Well, I think he probably... Um, gave me the sense that you need to go off and do your own thing. Yeah. You know, there was, I don't remember there being any serious conversations about it, but there was certainly no sense that, you know, all this awaits you because it wasn't all that grand mm. at One that day, point. Mary, yes, none exactly. of this would be yours. No, there were no, there were no <laughs> sort of cloudy eyes over yeah, yeah. where this might sort of all okay. end up. So I, and no I'd, siblings squabbling over what would be a, or should be a bigger state and... No, no, they were babies at that stage. Okay. And so I just sort of thought, well, I'll be going and making my own way in life. So marketing degree? Marketing degree here in Adelaide. And um, the moment, literally the moment I graduated, I got on a plane to Sydney and I, um, I door knocked North Sydney advertising agencies and just said, just give me a go. I'll, you know, I'll work for nothing just just give me a foot in the door and someone I knew knew of someone who said I'm not going to do any more than just give you this guy's name and you can say that I gave you his name and you'll see it. what happens and uh, I'll never forget that guy um, sort of an agency called Euro RSCG on, in North Sydney and uh, he gave me I don't know, 10 minutes of his time. And he said, the end of it, he, no, he asked me tough questions. He said, tell me five things you've done in your life that mean I should give you a job. Boy, you know, I was... That's a tough one. Yeah, and I didn't actually have a lot of life experience at that stage. So I, I didn't dream them up. I gave him five things I'd done in life. And he said, all right, tell you what, you can come here and you can do some research for me and... Um, and you know, then you're on your own. You go and find yourself a job somewhere else. And it was ironic because the chairman of the company was on leave or was overseas. So I got the best office in the building apart from his 
overlooking the harbour, huge office with a big table and, you know, couches and all of that. And people around the agency said, who's this new researcher? Gee, she must be good because she's got that fabulous office. You know, we we, want to meet her. So I actually managed to network around that building really well and met everybody. And... um, and then, you know, somebody else kind of heard of me at another agency and offered me a job. Now, at this stage, I was on, you know, a pittance. I could hardly pay for the mattress on the floor that I was renting in Paddington. Mm. Um, but one thing leads to another. So that was my start. And I just kept on going from there and went from agency to agency. Um, didn't stay too long at any one place. And, and, and Living a different life. Living a totally different life. Yeah. Great life. I mean, it was Sydney advertising in the 90s was pretty fast and, uh, it was, you know, it was yeah. pretty good. Um, spent everything I earned, of course. And, um, and then I ended up in an agency and they just put a call out one day and they said, look, we want to pitch for the Southcorp business. And at that stage, Southcorp had Penfolds, Lindemans, Wins. Devil's Lair, Coldstream Hills, a, a great, you know, sack full of really ace brands. And they said, does anyone in this agency know anything about wine? And I was middle middle kind of account director status, nothing, not a star that was brightly shining in that agency, working on pharmaceuticals, which I couldn't bear. And... Um, I said, look, I know something about wine. And they said, yeah, well, what do you know? And I said, well, you know, I've been doing, doing it as a sort of a, a family thing for a while. And they said, okay, will you come and help us pitch for this business and we want to win this account? And I said, well, I'll, I'll help you on one condition, that if you win it, if we win it, I come off pharmaceuticals and I run the business. And they looked at me sort of like the audaciousness of this junior burger in the middle, Mm. sort of expecting that they're going to run this piece of business. And they were desperate, obviously, because they said yes. And we won it. And, uh, And then that was just a great turning point for me because not only did I end up working on something I was really passionate and into, but also it was a great piece of global business where we got to do all the creative in Sydney and all the strategy. So we came up with all of the great strategies that I see Penfold is still using today around yeah. turning it into a luxury brand. And, that and as you're saying us. it, your face is lit up and you're excited <coughs> and you're smiling. So it's connected some dots in a way, hasn't it? It did. It really it connected a dot or two for me. And I loved working on all those great brands and all the stories and, you know, sort of the history and that kind of thing. Loved that. And then... Uh, I got a phone call, you know, down the track from dad one day saying, look, I need some marketing help. Um, Could you give me a hand? And I said, yeah, I'll write your marketing plan if you need one. He said, no, I sort of feel as I need, you know, a bit more than that. And so I started working for him part time and um, one thing turned into another and I came back and became his marketing manager. So that's a big decision, isn't it? Or have you reached a point? So dad's gone, you need to you need to come back because he actually asked you to no, come back? No, he, he's, he's not that type. He's never... He's it's never, not Mary, he's, I need you to come he, back? No, he's never right. that type. He, he's never desperate. He, he's uh, he, being the black sheep. He knows how to just keep himself just sort of at an arm's length okay. so that you do the walking. No, he didn't ask me to come back. Um, it just felt like it was the right thing to do. I'd lost my interest in advertising, I think. I I couldn't, I always felt like I was working in an emergency room and yet at the end of the day, the patient was 
a 30-second television ad that would be on air <coughs> for six weeks and why did we all twist ourselves into a pretzel and mm. drive ourselves, you know, sort of yeah. bonkers to Because it's sex, drugs it. and rock and roll. That's what it is. Yeah, well, you know, it's... that was fun, I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't found as much of that in the wine industry, but there's it has other benefits. So it wasn't a big... Um, heart wrench, although leaving Sydney was. I loved it up there, yeah. And, you know, that was probably the the more difficult bit was leaving there and coming back here. But um, So what were the difficulties, kind of ingratiating uh, yourself back into the business? Because now, I mean, you know, just the way you talk about your dad, I mean, especially if you're developing a marketing plan, but it's a little bit more than that, then you've got to have some say and force some direction that maybe causes trouble or that he's not comfortable with or that, Yes. Takes the company in a different direction. Yes. Uh, well, the first thing I said to him was, your labels are boring and you've got to change them. Right. And he Did said... Did you just tell him that? Yeah. And he said, you marketing types, you're always the same. You just always want to change the label just to show that you've been here. And he was right because I'd just come off working off that South Corp account, those brands there, and you could literally see every marketing manager through the progression of labels. And some of them had just... They were, they were dreadful. Looking at some of the old Sepult labels where you could see a new marketing manager had come on Every board time. and they'd just changed it completely. Yep. It looked dreadful, lost any sense of what the brand was about. And I said, look, you know, you've got this black sheep on your back label and it was tiny. It was literally sort of three millimetres just in the corner. It was his own little sign-off to himself. It was his rebellion against what he'd lived through mm. in the previous chapter mm. of his life before he went out on his own. And uh, I said, that is the DNA of your wine brand and that needs to come onto the front and be the, the – the, it needs to be the business, needs to be the yeah. – the whole thing that we stand for. So we liberated it off so the So he agreed label. with you? He's, he was very uncomfortable with it. Why? Um, because it was, it had been a painful period and it was just his own little conversation with himself. Um, but he didn't necessarily, remembering that I've come from this long line of men who don't really publicly blow their own bugle in any way, good or bad. Um, it was uncomfortable for him to probably turn that into a public yeah. announcement. Now you've got to feed it and it becomes That's everything, right. doesn't it? Yeah. And you're making a statement to the world, I suppose, mm. about who you are. But that was what made it so powerful, was that it was who he was. It was. It was it's authentic. He's not not making something up. It's yeah. not sort of a, some gimmick that he's been told to use by a brand agency. He, yeah. It was him. Yeah, it it's is not by him. design. It's actually got some meaning behind it. Yeah. And so it made it, for me, it was just a, a dream marketing job because the story writes itself in every breath he takes. Mm. Um, and, and through the series, I mean, just a little, and I haven't had the pleasure, to be honest, of drinking a lot of your wines, but just doing a little bit of research, you can see how that, you can see your influence straight away, what we presume in terms of marketing with black sheep and black blood, I presume is, yeah. is what what you're driving. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that that's true, although it's very collaborative in terms of the way we make the wine. And I think that um, the wine style was his it's his influence. He was. He's always been about um, 
a wine needs to start well in its infancy and it needs to be balanced. And if you have not got balance between the essential elements of, you know, alcohol, flavour, um, tannins, don't expect that it's going to miraculously turn up in the bottle in 10 years' time. So every wine we make comes from his DNA of how he sees a good wine. Um, and then we've just evolved it by, you know, um, adding sort of different ideas into the business like the Black Bloods. That's not my idea. That just came from creating a fabulous single vineyard Shiraz because yeah. McLaren Vale had this scarce earth project that yeah, they, that. yeah, so which is a fantastic project. We can project. touch on that quickly. Is it, so this is, because what, what it does, I suppose, is lead to the question of where Hamilton's is going. So yeah. the Sacred Earth Project was about recognising... The terroir, the, the land, exactly. and the connection to the grape, is that right? Yeah, they did a massive geological study of McLaren Vale and at the end of the day what they found out of you know years of study was that it had the most um, diverse geology of any wine region in the world. It was the most diverse geology of any wine region in the world. And so that spawned this idea that well, why, given that we are famous for Shiraz, why don't we start making Shiraz off single sites so that people can smell, taste and enjoy this idea of terroir, this lovely French mm. word, which I used to think was a little bit wanky and now I have the greatest respect for because it is all about how things taste from the place, mm. whether it's carrots or, you know, grapevines. And it's what makes wine interesting and beautiful. And then we turned, we took that project in-house and, and I just love what we've done because we've got three sites and we make three different Shiraz, but everything is absolutely identical. The the picking, the trellising, the whole viticultural approach, the winemaking approach, the oak or lack of, it's all the same. So the only thing that makes those three wines different, and they are extremely different in taste, texture, smell and, and weight, is just the soils that they come out of. And one is cracking black clay where the cellar door is, one is an ancient creek bed that's alluvial, and one is basically out of Maslin Beach sand. And the wines are spectacularly different because mm. of just the soil. Amazing, isn't mm. it? It's lovely. So from a personal perspective, you know, to kind of round out the interview, as a woman who's a CEO of a you know, wine company, what challenges has that presented? And are you an advocate for women in business and in... Actually, in my notes, I'd put first woman to take over the company, but maybe Mater was... Yes, way back in, an in the unofficial sense. In an, an, an unofficial CEO. Yeah, in an era where women, contract. women weren't really allowed to take the top spot. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. I think you just, you've got to be strong enough to follow your own your own ideas. And I did find that hard when I first came to McLaren Vale because it was much more like a village back then. <clears throat> and I'd come in from Sydney with sort of, you know, Sydney ideas and that wasn't received all that well in the district. Um, I think it's changed a lot since then, but perhaps that's a little microcosm for how women find things generally. Um, it's that if you've sort of got a a voice and a vision, it's not always well regarded, um, even by some of your closest allies. You you can find that your vision is not mm. necessarily... Have you got an example of that yourself? Oh, I think that Dad and I have not always, not always on the same page with, um, you know, how we see the future, but hopefully business has become stronger for going through those sorts of tensions as long as you don't let them crumble in the process, I think. Um, you know, that's that's often 
how it works is that you've got to actually just sort of work through and resolve those sorts of things. Is it a natural division between somebody who's focused on the business? And I'm, not, I'm just making an mm. assumption. For mm. example, you are as the CEO and your dad, who very obviously is still much a, a product person who's delivered, is driven by the product. Is that? Yeah, I think I'm probably more business oriented, but um, we just we just probably got different different ways of seeing things, and um, neither's probably right or wrong. It's just a different vision, and mm. at times, not on all things for sure, not on all things, but on on some things, it's different. And I, yeah, I think you just got to probably work your way through that, those things. Yeah, you're being, <laughs> being very politically correct. That's okay. What's your greatest um, similarity to your, to your father? The trait that you share together? What do you think? Not being boring. No, oh, you got to give us an example of that then. <laughs> thriving, thriving outside of the box. So neither of us like to march to the beat of anybody else's drum. We're probably both unemployable in anybody else's business. Mm. Um, like to do it our own way, which is probably also why we don't always see eye to eye on everything. Uh, but it means that the wines, the business, the marketing, the experience, the whole thing is not conventional and it makes our lives more interesting and I think it makes other people's lives who intercept with our wine, it adds something to their life as well and not being pretentious and there's a lot of, you know, wankery in wine at oh, times. Oh, there's not. What are you talking about? I've never come across any of that. Yeah. And what's the greatest difference? Mm, uh, that we're probably both black sheep in our own way and there can only be one. <laughs> I like that. Mm. So how many generations are we going to go forward with Hamilton Wines? Well, we're six Your at children the moment. Are take over? Well, they're Or they're off doing marketing. Oh, they're too young. Six. I was going to say they're off doing marketing degrees. <laughs> five and seven. Say. Stella would be appalled if I said six. Five and seven. So uh, she has put her name on my door, but um, <clears throat> it might be a little bit premature. Uh, but that's, you know, that's where the future lies. So... Mm. We'll have to wait and it's see. It's on the cards. You can't push your kids into anything, can you? No, not my So two. they might go away and come back. Mm. But it is important, and I have to draw this to your attention. She's got to le- You need a Kingswood? Yes, exactly. Because uh, she's got to learn to drive. How old is she? And she will be she's lining seven. up those she's shot glasses as well. Yeah. I can... And old enough to drink, too, yeah. <laughs> in a responsible fashion. She certainly fashion. thinks that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. So here's a, a few tips and tricks on how to match wine with food. Obviously, I've paired lots of dishes with lots of different wines. And one of the things that I learned, unlike what you're told, which is to reduce wine and get it syrupy, burn off the alcohol, is if you're using a great wine, just finishing a sauce with a couple of tablespoons really pops those notes. So when you taste the dish, the sauce, and then the wine, you get the same flavors, which is lovely. And whether or not you've made a good match, it's easy to tell. If you taste the food, drink the wine, then taste the food again and drink the wine, you shouldn't lose either one of those flavours. So they should be pretty much bang on. So if you've got vanilla and peach, for example, in a dessert, then you have a dessert wine and you pick up vanilla and peach, then you've got it absolutely right. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski, executive producer Jamie Shu. audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research. 